Lima, Delta, Echo. Lima, Delta, Echo. This is In Between Stations Radio broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, USA. Good evening on this late night, or as it is, early morning hours. You know, when it gets like that, and you're alert, things kind of shift when most people, at least where I'm living in my neighborhood, are asleep. Some poor souls are out there working. I used to work the graveyard shift at the local hospital here. That's trippy. Yeah, because people are are dying. Uh, And I worked in the ICU, uh, the emergency room, and walked the floors uh, a lot there. And a lot of very strange things happen. Uh, And some people actually uh, quit the graveyard shift. (laughs) Wasn't it Stephen King that had a a novel, Night Shift? (laughs) I've been... uh, dying to meet, or rather, I've already met him, or interview him, my uh, neighbor across the street. I'm not sure if dying to interview... <laughs> dying is the right word to use here, but um, my friend across the way here in my neighborhood is the uh, the local mortician, Undertaker, really nice guy. Uh, we're about the same age. He was in the Air Force and I was in the Army. I'm not sure if that's where he learned his trade. (laughs) But he has a very successful uh, funeral home. Nice looking guy. Always happy. Uh, He's a part of the um, Hispanic community here in Flagstaff, which is very old. Older than the town itself. So, um, he comes from uh, an old heritage of the uh, Spanish people, uh, Mexican Americans that uh, live in New Mexico. And they've been there long, long before this, the United States was the United States of America and was actually the territory of Mexico. And this traces back to uh, when Cortez came in the early 1500s. You can go to graveyards. You think graveyards are um, old in the, on the East Coast, in Pennsylvania, and some of those places? You ought to try some of the uh, graveyards in some of the graveyards in New Mexico. Wow, they're old. Not to mention the Pueblo people that have lived here for thousands of years. <laughs> uh, yeah, people have been here a long, long, long time. And so we have here in the Southwest, in addition to, uh, you know, white people which came much later, uh, you know, Europeans. Uh, we have these traditional tribes, and we have the uh, the Mexican people uh, in New Mexico, and they speak an older form of Spanish still in some of these little villages, which are so beautiful. If you've never been to a little town in New Mexico, up in the mountains, my my father was was born in New Mexico, and my family is from that state to some degree. Uh, my family's been here a very, very long time. My great-grandmother I can trace back to Mexico and beyond that, one of my great-grandmothers. And her family's been here since time immemorial. And still here in uh, southern Colorado, 
and uh, I was close to her when I did get a chance to go see my grandparents. She was my great-grandmother. I would see her and she made a huge impact in my life uh, that I didn't really realize until I got older. And uh, this little uh, village is not far from Taos. Uh, Taos is one of the, is the farthest northern uh, Pueblo in the southwest southwestern United States. Actually the Pueblos continue way down on the Rio Grande into Mexico and, and just keep moving. So um, there didn't used to be a wall there. Uh, and in, in many of our minds, people that are from the southwest that have roots here, um, we don't see a wall. I don't speak Spanish uh, too well. <laughs> and actually, I'm the only per person in my family that that's true of. All my ancestors uh, spoke fluent Spanish uh, and often native languages because uh, I tie into the tribes through my great-grandmother, as, as I was saying. In a little town uh, that my... In, in southern uh, Colorado, the San Luis Valley, uh, it was very common for someone to speak several languages. It still is in a lot of the uh, these pueblos that move along the Rio Grande. Uh, I have a friend. I, sometimes I speak to him. It's Hopi. He speaks five languages, and two of those, Spanish and English, are added to four other pueblo languages. And he speaks fluently. He can move back and forth to these languages. Unbelievable. And because he's, and because he's, ever since he's been a little boy, he's been known for his traditional singing. He's picked up languages. I think he even speaks more than than five uh, when he sings. He can sing, and, and and he has a sort of photographic memory. And this is something that natives pride themselves in: is you hear a song one time, and you have it down. And and, and he's quite good at this. He knows hundreds of songs, literally. And the thing about uh, indigenous uh, songs is this is where all the knowledge is. This is where the history is. When you sing, you sing, you sing the ancestors into being. You sing, the, you sing about their migrations. You sing about the animals, and, and there are people, and the deer, and the elk, and they sing, and they have stories, and they have histories, and they migrate, and, and, and the wolves, and all the animals. Uh, and in the wintertime, you tell these stories of the animals and the ancestors. When the work's over in the fields, uh, you focus on these beautiful stories that are told. And with the uh, Diné people, there's only a certain time of year you can tell the ancestral stories. Uh, and that's during the winter wintertime. Uh, they're very sacred, and they're told in a special way. And often these stories are communicated through beautiful songs. Uh, and they're not all, you know... <laughs> um, excuse me. having my coffee as usual. We get this feeling if you watch Hollywood movies a lot and you're not connected to tribes, uh, that you know, you hear this, uh, this traditional uh, Indian drum beating. <laughs> Here, let me play it. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And everyone, and, and then to think that's the only uh, variation on Native American music, you know, dun 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 is absolutely insanely ridiculous. There are thousands of songs, and they're beautiful, and there's the variations are even much more complex than our own music, and it's very old. And 
these these songs not only do they celebrate uh, ancestors and celebrate uh, tribal histories but they are instructional devices and they're also uh, ways to say thank you and to praise all living things so um, yeah interesting little bit there so New Mexico is very old uh, it's been around a long time and there's a lot of what we call superstitions I don't call them superstitions has anyone read Bless Me Ultima? Wow, one of my favorite books. It's on a traditional uh, Spanish New Mexico. It's just beautiful. It's a contemporary look into the uh, deep, deep uh, connections in Spanish, Spanish America. That's been you know before it was Spanish America, and its connections to older, uh, uh, older Mexico, as, as it's called, and it's just. It's, immensely deep culture here in the southwest that's that's just so uh so important and so wonderful and so dynamic as well and it has a gentle beautiful heart beating that is an experience you you shouldn't miss and realizing that we have these deep deep ties with with mexico uh, not only um genetically but culturally and it's part of our our proud heritage in our country on traditional Spanish Mexico and on uh, shamanism, on the cunanderos, uh, on the brujos, on the, we call them witches, I don't like that name, uh, because they do a lot of good things too. And there's this constant battle between good and evil that is performed by these, uh, these as we call them, shamans. And they're very powerful healers. And um, in addition to the Native American healers, there's the, 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 the brujos, the cunanderos, the, uh, the traditional healers that take years to learn their craft. And these are all often intercessories, or these are in between people with the living and the dead. And uh, they perform, they, uh, most the ones I know, know hundreds of plants on how to mix them and, and use them and how to apply them in much of the way a doctor does. I mean, you still go to the doctor and you still see your physician and you still get surgeries and go to the hospital, but um, the shaman in New Mexico, the, the brew houses, uh, uh, the medicine people, uh, they have a different dynamic they go into. And this is the one sometimes we don't like, you know, we call it immaterial. Anyway, very, very fascinating. Uh, and, and there's religions uh, that, have, that have healers and have uh, religious um, ceremonies where they heal people. And I've been part of those as well. The, um, the faith that I grew up in, Mormonism, is well known for its... Uh, for healing and helping people out. They have these beautiful uh, private sessions uh, where there's a lot of prayer and fasting. And I, I, uh, I'm I, a result. I, I can see out of one of my eyes, and I'm not blind, uh, but I could have been. And there was a healing session that took place and, and marvelous things there. I think when you have a system that uses spirituality and faith in addition to, to medical things, um, Marvelous uh, things can take place, and miraculous things, actually. There's a lot of things going on in the body uh, and the mind that we don't really understand. 
and that always a pharmaceutical or a surgery doesn't always help out. I think it's nice to combine all these things, personally. Like I said, getting too extreme, um, you can get a little off base there. Uh, and I think it's finding a balance between different systems and uh, even different beliefs, belief uh, setups can, can be helpful. But if you have a way you follow and, and, uh, and a culture you're in, uh, I would suggest that you stay with that. Uh, a few of us have had experiences that navigate us outside that element. It's, it's difficult. Uh, and I don't suggest it unless it's something you need to do. Um, your culture is intact and it works and your religion for, for important reasons. And there's things there that, uh, that transcend the physical, that move beyond what you can only, what you can see sometimes. What happens when a person dies? I've tried to talk a little bit about my three experiences with um, death, and it's kind of hard. Um, personal experiences where I felt like I died. It's it's hard to verbalize. It's something you know you have to be there. I just uh, was in a, um, a discussion online with some people about uh, the plant medicine I talk often about ayahuasca, and um, it was interesting because what it boiled down to basically was you got to do it. You have to have this experience. You can't talk about it. You've got you've gotta have it take place. And once that happens, then you're, you can, uh, you're invited to, to be in the dialogue. I love how outsiders, you know, when it comes to religious experiences or it comes to life and death situations, how outsiders often love to get in there and debate and say, well, you know, when your brain, when your brain dead, that's the end of life. We have no proof beyond that. Proof. And, you know, I talk about this often, materialism and non-materialism. How much can we register something? In the Newtonian dynamic, we know, you know, we get in this, this, this constant in my episodes, because I try to wake you up and rattle you a little bit. There's so much we can't see that's going on, and especially in the quantum world, that just kind of mess up things, you know? That a photon can be in two places at one time. That every time the observer, the scientist looks at the position and then turns back to do something else, the reality, the state of consciousness, the dynamic of reality is totally changed. And it's a huge problem. We talked about that with the Copenhagen problem where you sit there and the observer is constantly changing the position and the reality of the, of the atomic particle. It's very strange. And I, I love to go through that and say, well, don't be so sure of yourself. And I think we get, we're get we so involved with our television and working and driving our cars back and forth and going on a little vacation. And being in this dynamic, we don't like to think about death. We don't like to think about dying. I mean, and there's people that are preoccupied with it, necrophilia and stuff like that, you know. And, and I am, you know, again, getting in these extremes. But I think normally when we're alive, we don't want to think about dying. We don't want to think that things die. It's not that pleasant of a situation. But I think it's necessary to understand, you know, it's like a one... <laughs> I have a friend, he always reminds me of this little thing. He says that um, you have this short time to be alive and then you're dead forever. <laughs> you know, once you're dead, it's the eternal thing out there. So, we're, you know, 
and, and we know where does energy go? Why are you even conscious in the first place? You know, I talked about I talk about this. What what is consciousness? It's this huge debate. I mean, if you want to get if you want to get people arguing with each other on both the same sides of the fence and different sides of the fence, let's talk about consciousness. That is so strange and so beautiful. It's hard, you know, we don't even know what the hell it is. <laughs> so where does it go when the body dies? Is that kind of the end of it? And when you're in nature a lot, you know, nature just doesn't die. I mean, it, it dies, uh, and awful things can happen. I mean, I just, you know, an entire force that was a home to me is gone. But it's regenerating on some level. Life, you know, it, it, it is a, um, growing up on a farm when I was a boy, I hated, I disliked <laughs> going out and weeding. This, we had this huge garden that was like two and a half acres, and there's bigger ones than that. Some are 100, 200. Uh, but it had a, a variety of different things in it. And I just, every, it had to go out like every four or five days and weed, you know, weeds. Uh, the things that you didn't plant that you're not going to eat. Weeds is one of those words, you know, putting it in parenthesis. It all depends on what you eat and what it's helping out and, you know, what animal needs it. And if you need it for a, a plant medicine, uh, you know, that's amazing when you go out with a, with a healer or a shaman or a medicine person. If you go in the landscape, it's amazing all the plants that you thought that you thought were weeds can actually save your life. You can actually eat them. You can actually build a house with them. You know, you could do all these amazing things. And so I think weed is something that we designate as not part of the garden that we planted or the field we have. Listen, it is, no matter what you do, spray, uh, dig up. Um, it, it, it comes back. Life comes back, and it's 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 amazing uh, that it can do that. And that's that this 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 whole process of the Egyptians, and they were an agrarian society. This uh, deity Osiris, that was the god of the dead and the living. You know, it was that um, the resurrection sequences are very powerful in ancient Egypt and life after death. And because it was viewed in the terms of plants, it was viewed in terms of the season, how the earth regenerates itself after the winter season and brings back all this life. And after thousands of years of seeing that, you know what's going to happen. Certain constellations are up there in the sky. You know, certain things designate the season. You don't always need a computer to tell you what <laughs> day it is. And, you know, if you navigate by starlight, if you're on the landscape a lot, you know, you know, we used to, uh, on our farms where I grew up, when you used to irrigate, you irrigated at night. You know, irrigation's kind of a strange thing because there's not as much evaporation. And that's when you got your watering turn. You know, you get these turns to water your field two or three weeks down the line. And when you have your turn, it's usually at night, so you go out with these huge siphons uh, and move them into the different rows to get the water to flow uh, down the road that sometimes might be three or four acres long or more than that, and, and to water the different plants that might be there. You know, that you're going to sell and harvest later on, like right now is the harvest season. Uh, and you know, we get into such a dynamic where we go to the store and the grocery store and we order off Amazon. You never really see where your food comes from. You don't even have an idea what ha what's in that, who had it and where it was at, you know. And uh, But when you're when you grow up on a farm, uh, when you're part of that, you know where everything is. You know where, how you plant it, take care of it, 
um, you're, you're, you're aware of things from the beginning to the end, you know, and so that's, that's something we start, we're starting to lose, and uh, we just kind of think it's going to be on the shelf, and I think there's this awareness that we lose, it's automatic, you know, the feeding machine, like uh, Charlie Chaplin, the modern times. <laughs> You know, when he worked in this factory, this, this guy makes a feeding machine. So the workers don't have to leave the assembly line. You can sit on the assembly line and, and continue to work while the machine feeds you. <laughs> no time is lost. Every minute is precious when you're, when you're in, working on the assembly line. You will do your job and you won't talk. You'll do exactly as you're told. And when you're hungry, we have a feeding machine to strap on. So you can get fed while you're still working. We won't waste any time. <laughs> if you want to see one of the great, wonderful movies of all time, see Modern Times by Charles Chaplin. Wow. Not only is it a great love story, but it's this co complete comic uh, look at uh, the American dream and, and poverty and being enslaved to a factory and you know Chaplin is the divine clown and he he does this movie with his wife who's just so beautiful uh, it's just it's you know and it, it also has you know Chaplin had this way of interweaving uh, in, uh, intense humor with great sadness he just was a, he was a he was a divine clown not only was he a great actor but he was a great comedian and he was a great director he was a song composer Modern Times is one of my favorite movies. I've watched it hundreds of times. Anyone that knows me <laughs> will sooner or later sit down and watch Modern Times. Wonderful stuff. And if you get a chance, you should, um, you should watch that masterpiece. Okay, that's another strange experience as well, um, as film. We've got so um, involved in the digital world now. I don't know if we think about it, but when I was a boy, I used to... <laughs> my mom about it hey mom where's that person in the film you know we'd watch these old 19 uh, my mom would watch silent films sometimes or we'd watch uh, the first talkies you know in the, in the late 20s uh, my mom was a uh, a great one for films she kind of she kind of taught me how to watch old movies uh, and she was a, a writer uh, a playwright and, uh, and a poet and, and uh, so it was fun to have to grow up with a parent like that, you could watch a movie with. Because she, you know, I don't know if she knew a lot about camera angles and editing process as much as she knew about the literature, the way you, the way you made a story. And she was a master at uh, understanding narratives. So setting with her was beautiful experience. So I used to ask her, hey mom, is that, is, uh, is, uh, is Joan Crawford still alive? You know, and she'd say, no, uh, she, she died. And I'll be like, well, how come she's moving on the film? You know, why, why is... I mean, look, Mom, I get close to the TV. You know, we had these, these old TVs, not the digital ones like we have now in a, in a wood cabinet. <laughs> these huge green screens inside the big wood cabinet that was as big as a car with the stereo and stuff, you know, and it had this beautiful wood, real wood, you know, not particle board that would have been carved, and inside that was the TV, and you'd watch that, and you'd like... Hey, well, Mom, where's the people in the TV? <laughs> you know, and you're little. You, you don't know. You know, uh, and I used to be obsessed that um, there were little people in villages and cities living inside my TV. And, you know, to some, you know, a TV itself is a very strange thing. Farnsworth 
uh, I think was born in Idaho, a farmer, when they would do their uh, their furrowing and make the rows, you know, for the crops later on in the, in the big fields, I believe he was sitting on the back of one of their, uh, you know, they call them harrows, they have a little seat back there, the old ones, the manual ones that made the rows in the field to plant the seeds. And you, you have, you know, these big fields, you'd have row after row after row, and then he came up with this whole idea of television. I mean, when you think about TV, it's, it's kind of strange. It's, kinda, it's like shortwave radio. Where, where are the voices? I mean, I'm hearing someone on the shortwave radio that's thousands of miles away, you know, and, and, and it's passing through these huge clouds and this thick atmosphere, and there's, there's energized particles from the sun there, you know, photon, and, 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 and there's solar storms, and there's uh, all kinds of static in the ionosphere, and, and, and you're picking this, this world up on this little... Well, sometimes they're not so well, especially during the days of tube radio. You're picking up this 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 voice, and and, and it's like thousands of miles away, and you're hearing it in your living room. Is that you know what you know? Where's that coming from? As a little boy, especially on TV, it's you know it's a marvelous thing to um, to see people on the screen there. So I'd ask my mom, well, if she, if, if she's dead, if this, if this movie star is dead, then how come I can see him? I, you know, I get really close to go, look, mom, they're breathing. You know, exhaling, inhaling. Uh, they're scratching their, their neck. Um, you can see their pupils dilate sometimes. Uh, you can, and, and, and they're, and they're, you know, they're, they're in the film. And if you go to a movie theater, you know, now, uh, not, not so much, uh, and, and that's one of my uh, degrees is filmmaking. And in addition, you know, nonlinear film was kind of just starting out when I was in, in, at the University of Utah. And, uh, you know, digital editing. But we were still doing film, strips of 16-millimeter uh, film. And you had the negative film, and then you develop that, and then you have this, and then you sort of edit manually you cut with a cutter and then you run it through the spools and you edit and it's this whole process where you actually if you want to see amazing uh, little documentary and one of my big heroes is Orson Welles because he was a, a genius on many levels he had talents he was an artist he was a musician uh, he was a radio orator uh, he was a playwright this guy by the time he was in his in his early 20s he'd already mastered uh, filmmaking He's one of the. He's like the Mozart of, of, of film, and he's funny, and he's and he's he's just wonderful. And there's this whole uh, process where he talks about filmmaking, and he edited a lot of his own films. And he we can No one's really ever been able to equal the, the editing skills of Orson Welles. And he talks about editing, and he talks about. Uh, he did another documentary, F is for Fake. You know how you create this whole world uh, with inside the film, inside the television, inside the radio, and you know we know you know Orson Welles did this whole thing with War of the Worlds, where people that didn't listen to the radio announcements and just tuned into the the radio program thought the world was being invaded by people from Mars. <laughs> you know, a couple of people even committed suicide because they thought were, there was an invasion going on. And I, I love to talk about how editing. Can really make us believe something, you know. And, and a lot of a lot of my shows are about that because I, I'm an editor. You know, I talk about uh, uh, Winston Smith a lot in 1984 because he's an editor, and how you can construct reality through editing, and you can make people think something's real. And 
this documentary F is F is for fake by Orson Welles is just so entertaining and he just takes apart this whole thing of what you think is real and what and what is real and how there's this fine line between uh, reality and culture and languages and seeing and hearing life and death <laughs> you know I, I, I um, this is I don't want to go in this too much because I'm still trying to work through this my uh, my girlfriend just passed away um, uh, someone that I've been in a relationship over the years and I've shared very personal moments with uh, se seemingly I knew more about her in some ways than her own family did um, but losing someone like that um, reminds you of this fine line between reality between what's in your mind and what's outside there and what's in your heart and, um, how this person felt when you slept by them or when you touched them or when you talked to them and you know um, how much can you verbalize of a hug or a kiss or, or loving someone you know what is love let's look at love scientifically <laughs> sort of ludicrous isn't it <laughs> Well, these are the hormones. These are the hormones that are going on uh, when you love somebody. This is what's going on in your brain when you're in love with somebody. This is what's going on in your in your body. It's purely a biological function, so we can keep life going on. It's all about having sex with that person. <laughs> Bullshit. I I'm going to tell you that being alive in life is a lot more than just about having sex and 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 having. Um, it's about this process called love being with someone, about sharing emotions and feelings. And you can't do that with math. Yeah, you can try. You can give me the chemical compositions of what's going on with testosterone and estrogen and, and all that stuff. And that's why we have poetry, and that's why we have literature. And we have, you know, it's, it, there's, there's more to living a life than numbers. Than, uh, than logic, than rationality. And, though, and, and we know those things break down uh, when we switch dynamics, when we switch from Newtonian to quantum, when we switch between uh, things like love and, and, and hate and pain and life and death. And, and things can't always be quantified in the physical sense that we understand. So this beautiful experience you have, you know, if, with life, you can really love is a is, is an amazing thing and it can be felt not just between humans i've spent a lot of time with coyotes and wolves and other wild animals coyotes in particular let me tell you something there is an amazing power of love in, in a pack in a family in devotion in touching with your nose you know with your snout with with your with your fur the wind blows through it and and and, and and your mates touching it, and your and your pups are touching it, and you're highly affectionate animals that have deep emotions. For God's sakes, our dogs are canines. <laughs> if you know dogs, coincidentally, one of my one of the most amazing life and death experiences I had have had, putting aside my own personal ones, is with my dog. Um, yeah, the night she died. I had an amazing, I don't think it was a dream. Um, she came to me from 
the most beautiful, incredible place I've ever seen. And everything, you know, and I've talked about this, you don't know you're dreaming until you wake up. You don't even know if this is a dream or not until you wake up and go into another. You know what? And I've been through this. I love to just navigate you in this in this maze where you're so you know so set on believing that you know at the end of the end of things is with death. I just don't believe it. I just I have had so many experiences, and I and I can be extremely rational, and I can be extremely critical and I can sit with the best of them I think sometimes and listen to that and I have listened to a lot of lectures but at some point it just falls apart it just doesn't work the whole experience of life you know is so wrapped up in your consciousness and your experience with your body to sit in a forest and to hear the wind blowing in the aspens and in the pine trees and to hear the river in the background of the stream, to feel the ambience of the, of, of the air in, in the early morning, the frost on the ground and on the plants, and as the sun comes out to feel it warming up things, and, and, and to take your shirt off sometimes and to feel the warmth on your skin, or to feel your lover against your body, or to feel uh, one of your children against your, your body with your arm around them, and, and read them a story out of a book. Um, and experience that kind of love. There's different levels of that. You're not. You're not going to. Here comes the train. <laughs> I don't. So I, I, a lot of times my uh, my editing devices uh, keep that sound out, and, I, and I've kind of decided. Um, I hope you can hear it because it's it's interesting. For me, a lot of times trains signify time. That's one of the examples that Einstein used of the theory of relativity is being on a train one of his really beautiful uh, um, examples of uh, the fourth uh, dimension of time and how it changes with speed and moving on trains. Trains are amazing. Uh, I, I've had the chance to be on them more than several times. And, uh, there's an experience you get with a train you really don't get with a car or even with an airplane. These trains have this, 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 this feeling of the passage of time uh, that's not like anything else, I think. Maybe a lighthouse? <laughs> you know the reason I like to uh, to to use these examples of these powerful hallucinogenic plant medicines that's been used for thousands of years is because when you uh, when you partake of them uh, you don't have any choice <clears throat> you just you're you're thrown into this 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 multiplicity of realities you're thrown into this broader and greater. Uh, sense of things, not only in visual, but in feeling and, and hearing, uh, and, and you realize that, that this reality you, you were in is very one-dimensional. And having been involved in, in fasting and praying um, in religious context, heavy fasting and days of praying, uh, it, you can have the same experience. It's not as quick, it's not as fast. Um, and not near as painful, <laughs> or maybe it is, uh, is, is uh, and, and, and as frightening sometimes as some of these uh, powerful plant uh, medicines and ceremonies are. The ceremony itself in the, in the indigenous uh, format is meant to break up uh, reality itself, the, the everyday reality, it's, and it's meant to attune you in to uh, 
to the things you're not paying attention to or you're busy you know working in your fields or you're busy hunting or you're busy making clothes uh, you know the process of food like manioc which go you know is actually a very toxic plant but goes through this uh, immense process uh, that takes you know days and days and making it so it's an edible bread which is, is quite good um, and so it's this you know you're involved in the in the processes of life and, and surviving and you don't have time sometimes to focus on these minute things that's going on uh, and so the ceremony is meant to break up this up and to open you up to a, a deeper and uh, a more complex and, and, and beautiful world and, and, and I think repetition of song and, and fasting and these plant medicines are meant to to break that up and open you up to this uh, this, this broader sense of, of reality and universe and life and death. And uh, he, I, I was heavily involved for a number of years in Rinzai Zen, which is very strict order of Zen. Uh, and there's a certain way that you sit or do Zazen, meditate. It's a, a discipline. Um, and you may sit for hours and days fasting. And um, in early morning hours, until the sun, sun comes up and goes down, it can be outside. Uh, Japanese um, meditation Zen is very strict, and uh, you maintain a, um, a half lotus or full lotus position, a straight back. Uh, you learn to relax, and <clears throat> in the system I'm in, you pay, you let go of what you consider nine to five reality and you start paying attention to every single thought that rises up you know and and and, 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 and the feelings in your in your body and your emotions and you start paying attention to the stuff that's behind the scenes when you're out there working when you're involved in your daily processes and tasks you that you don't pay attention. Rinzai Zen makes you pay attention to the extreme details of your thoughts. Uh, everything. The sounds, the breathing, the temperature. Um, you're extremely aware. After a while, you, you don't go to sleep anymore. Because when you first start sitting for long periods of time, you have a... Uh, you have uh, this... Y your mind wants to wander. Uh, and, and, and then eventually you just kind of start going to sleep. And what you learn when you, when you go through this, this extreme discipline of, of Zen, Renzai Zen, when you're sitting on this beautiful handmade black cushion with a, a little rice-filled pillow, and you learn to, to fine-tune yourself in, in every single thought. And you may take a thought and follow it all the way through. Sometimes it takes months a thought that keeps coming up. Why is it coming up? What does it mean? And it may connect to um, a childhood experience. It may connect to the death of someone. It may connect to a butterfly. And the butterfly might connect to a, a, a park. Yeah, a park that you're with your mother. Yeah, it may connect to your mother talking to you. And then you realize, hey, oh my God, this, I have a memory of when I was in the stroller. I can see my mom's face. And, and, and so you follow these memories through and you see where they go and, and there's knots in there and there's and there's stored up energy and you try to you try to untie those and you try to come to terms with those things and eventually over time letting go of anger and hate but and, 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 
and hurt and wounds, like for me with, with war and loss, uh, you go over and over these things, you know, over these things that we call suppress and push down. Uh, and you, you, you see what their source is. And it takes sometimes months, even years, to follow through the, the source of some thoughts. And it's an extremely healing process if you allow yourself to do this and to finally let go. And to see that there's something more that's called the, the great emptiness. It's not empty. It's this place that you don't fully understand where your life comes from. It's God. It's creation. Uh, it's consciousness. And it's nonverbal. It's the great uncarved block of stone, as it's called um, in some of the older traditions in China and India. And India has another beautiful way of this, this infinity of, of worlds and, and of, of consciousness and uh, of life. And uh, this, this sacred regard for all living things. But, but spending time in, uh, you know, weeks, months, years uh, with Zazen... Uh, is amazing. You open, and then you become aware that just, I remember one morning, in the early morning hours, it must have been 5 a.m., you can kind of hear the chiming of the big grandfather clock downstairs, and all, all the Zen students and, and teachers are upstairs sitting on their cushion. It's dark, and uh, with straight backs, and you're in the full lotus position. Eyes are either closed or fully open, as is the case. And a car goes by on, on State Street outside the window. And you're so, you're, you're so sensitive to sound and movement, that car like... <laughs> um, <clears throat> the sound was like an enlightening process. The subtleties, I could hear the pistons moving in the engine. I could hear the gas mixing with the, with the oxygen. I could hear the wheels moving. I could actually hear the radio inside the car. And I thought I could hear the person breathing in the car. And that car went by in seconds. That's how intense <laughs> you can. And, and I know from being in the military and working with people in special forces and working with um, uh, uh, army snipers, marine snipers who are the best. It's an extreme discipline. You may, I had one friend, he told me it took him two days to cross 100 yards in a field. And uh, this, this guy was, he, he knew how to meditate. He knew how to move very slowly with his rifle and, you know, it, uh, camouflaged. And um, he had one shot, that's all, to take a, a leader of uh, the enemy's platoon out. He had to do it, and he talked about the whole process uh, of being disciplined and how you listen to everything and every sound, and you move so slow, you can't even defecate. You fast, and, 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 and you don't eat because you can't urinate. You can't, you can't do your natural process because you'll be detected, and then there's also things to wear that so night vision can't detect you because that's another big thing now is night vision and there's there's different kinds of clothing you can wear so you can't be detected but yes there's you know your awareness levels with discipline change and that's why i like to say with these plant medicines these 
thousands of years of tribal traditions, there's a, there's a deep discipline on how you act in, the, in this other world, in this other place, this other reality. Or how you expand out and fill these realities in, in the Zen situation. And you have some people that's been doing this 50, 60 years that are masters. Uh, and uh, it's this, and you become aware of this incredibly complex thing called life and death. That it's immense. This universe is extremely immense. You know, I, I like to say, how, how do we get stuck in one time period, in one way of learning? And there's all these thousands of different cultures. How do we get stuck in thinking that this is alive? That this is the way you live your life? You know, like, like Winston Smith in 1984 in the, in, the, in the dystopia of Oceana. How do you get convinced that that's normal? And you think that your life right now is normal. Or in a war when you can kill people and torture people. Women and children. And, and somehow it's okay because it's in the name of your country. I mean, and how do, you, how do you excuse the death of children, men and women? You know, I, I actually was in a town for a while that Lieutenant Cowley was from. He was a jeweler in that town. And uh, going to airborne school, we took a little trip there. Oh, we weren't supposed to. <laughs> and uh, I was going to go talk to him. And this guy, if you want to read, read, read about something, read about Lieutenant Cowley um, in Vietnam, which is a very uh, difficult war because often you didn't know who the enemy was because you're invading all these, these villages with women and children who are trying to defend their homes. And they may carry a bomb or, or they may have a gun. Even a little boy or a little girl might have a gun and they might kill one of your one of your fellow comrades in your platoon. And you know, Cali went crazy. This happened a lot. And uh, he was infamous for killing a whole village full of people, innocent people. And uh, it's a, it's an interesting to read about that. Yeah, reality um, the horrifying aspects of it, the beautiful aspects of it. Um, it's one thing I like to say about nature. You know, there's all, everybody's always talking about the immense beauty of nature and the the peacefulness of it, and the solitude, and the wind, and you know, the call of the wolf. But let me tell you something: if you solo and you're in nature a lot, and you're, and you're out there in the open desert, it can be very <laughs> dangerous. It can be very shocking. Things like lightning and storms and, and getting hurt, breaking a leg, or um, getting attacked by a wild animal, you know, which is rarely ever has ever happened with me. When you understand behavior of animals, um, that usually doesn't happen too much. I never carry a gun. I used to when I hunted. I, used to, I grew up hunting. I, don't, I haven't carried a gun for years. I've never been attacked. I mean, it could happen. I mean, mountain lions—they um, track you, and I've had—I've been tracked before by mountain lions, uh, but they tend to leave you alone. Um, uh, so I don't know. Uh, anyway, a lot of people um, feel like they have to have those things, and I can understand that too. Um, but for me, because I spent years learning about the behavior of animals and plants and trees and landscape and elevation and seasons. Uh, I like to think that I, I, most of the time, I'm okay. I don't go around petting anim wild animals. <laughs> I've approached them before, and they've approached me. I've had coyotes and wolves walk up to me. Um, and, you know, there's always 
all these formalities you go through and sometimes it can be a little a little intense um, but uh, there's a lot of nonverbal things and there's a body language and I try not to get in that situation where um, I have to confront a wild animal especially something like a, a bear or something like that and usually they run away but if there if, if there's a face-to-face -face meeting that can be another kind of a problem and I try to stay out of those sort of situations um, and there are things like grizzly bears and stuff like that that will track you uh, it can be quite dangerous I don't really spend a lot of time in grizzly bear country um, but uh, I'm sure there's formalities and ways to do that so still struggling with this cold um, it's that time of year so uh, you know it's getting close to Halloween and Day of the Dead and um, it's that time of year where we start thinking about the other worlds you know the the spirits <laughs> the ghosts past family members and for me my uh, my girlfriend who I miss a lot and love a lot and I was going to spend time talking to you about some experiences I've had with her since she's died that are very unusual. And once again, leave me little room to believe there's so much more to life than just going to work and, and reading mathematical equations. And there's, there's so much we don't know. And I'm telling you, the heart is a medium to transcend the logic of things sometimes and to give you hope in situations where there might not be any hope at all. Love is an incredible power in life or death. And if we could see, if we could really see things for what they are, I don't even know if there is a death. I mean, there's the rite of passage, which I, in itself is probably difficult. But if we could see things as they were, we might see everyone there. We might see all the dimensions, all the realities, and that they're one. And I think that's part of the Creator or God or the universe, if you want to call it that, the sacredness is, is, the, is the, to the totality of all those things. And it's immense. Just look in the new James Webb telescope, what it can see, what's out there. We don't, we're just scratching. <laughs> and love is one of, the, one of the instruments you can use to divine and to understand the, the universe and the world. And it's just an incredible, and humans are not the only ones that have love, I'm sorry. I've just been around wild animals too much, and animals, and even plants. Love is a power that transcends a lot of the other logical mediums. It's a fluid. It's a, it's 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 a it's a touchable. It's it's a feeling you have, and it's something since my um, my girlfriend's passed away. I've she's communicated to me in a very powerful way. That leaves me no doubt that there's an afterlife. Things happen in a way that um, it's between you know me and her. The only it's something only we knew about, and yet somehow she reminds me even now that she's still alive in, in a way I don't understand. But there's still I miss her. I can't touch and feel her in the way that I did. So yes, beautiful life even after death. So, um, as it is, happy Halloween. He's Sam Hain, Day of the Dead. Um, mentioning, too, that sometimes we see the skull differently in the Christian ethic, you know, in these, in these southern tribes in Mexico. And the skull is a seed. 
It's the ancestor that you plant and all life comes from it. We would not be alive if it wasn't for the dead. Those that have passed on before us gave us life. There are seeds. It's in our DNA. It's in our bodies and we pass them on to the future and to our children yet unborn. So that the skull, Lady Ninegrass, as she's called in traditions in southern Mexico, um, she's the, you put the skull on your face as a regenerator of life. You wear the sacred jaw of the dead. It's a seed, it's a planting, it's a memory that's very sacred and it's in you, it's in your DNA and you pass it on. And that's all it is. It's not like the Christian thing reminding us of death and, uh, and evil and witchcraft. The skull is very sacred. It's, uh, and you know, it is. When you look at the, the cells and you look at the way it's put together and it, it, it at one time held the eyes and the mouth and the tongue and the beautiful skin, it's, it's a generator. It's a, it's, a, it's a seed, it's a, it's a baseline underneath the surface of your skin. And uh, we need those things. And uh, it's interesting that you can take the DNA of something out of the bone of ancestors, you, you know, and, and, uh, and you can look at it, and it, it connects to yours. It's a living thing. It's not dead. Even rocks aren't dead if you look at the atomic particles. Consciousness, there's so many different ways of something to be conscious. Um, as we get uh, closer to the uh, end of our show here, in fact, we're almost done. <laughs> Getting up on that hour, uh, um, uh, the end of our show, uh, it's actually went into the three-hour time frame. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about my, my girlfriend, Tiva, who passed away. I really loved her a lot. She was a very unusual individual, highly sensitive, uh, very compassionate, very loving, but she went through um, these tremendous mental storms, and she knew about them. And sometimes it was terrifying to her, other times um, it just totally disconnected her from life and our relationship, uh, and uh, she would occasionally disappear and um, it would put people into a panic that loved her and she felt it was a way to retreat uh, and not put people through this emotional uh, and mental uh, I like to call it a storm because it really was a lot like that and uh, so she would disappear sometimes you wouldn't see her for a while and that was not too easy um, and then she would have these switches in character that didn't last too long, but long enough that it could be kind of hard. When you love somebody, you're willing to put up with just about anything, especially when you know that person is trying. And a lot of times she didn't always have control of these things. And I know people talk about having control of your emotions and being in control of your life, and most of us can. Uh, but some of us, some of us can't, you know, and I think Tiva was, was that way. I mean, I, I think even in normal situations, in a normal, supposed normal relationship, it's, it's still a challenge uh, to go through um, things that, uh, with each other. You know, you just, you put up with things, and especially 
You know, I, I used to like to say that five-year mark, uh, when you can pass that, then maybe you can say you're going to be in a relationship um, because then you start to know what that person is like. Um, one thing about, uh, about Tiva was this: she had this beautiful heart. I don't think I've ever met anybody quite like her. The kind of love uh, that she could give and gentleness was unbelievable. Almost, uh, you know that old riddle, is love an art or a craft? <laughs> you know, craft being that you make things and uh, weave things, and then, you know, art being that uh, you paint and uh, you make landscapes and... Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's it's, it's kind of nutty. I don't see a, much of a difference because uh, art is in the way you do things, that the way your songs put together. Uh, you know how you there see how you craft it, <laughs> how you tweak it, how you turn it so it it does a certain you ha, you know you have a certain approach. And uh, I think love was something that uh, Tiva was uh, gifted with, but then these. You know, it's like you have these beautiful, nice, sunny days and then these tremendous storms, at least here in the southwest from Mexico, move in. And they're quite beautiful, too, but they can be fairly terrifying. They just move across. They're suddenly there, you know, during the rainy season, monsoon season. There's these huge storms, and some of them can be terrifying if you're out in the open. And I think sometimes with Tiva, her mind uh, had to go through these, and it was no choice of her own. And um, that was that's the hard thing, but I really love her and I miss her. I didn't know how much I loved her until she's gone. In a way, you know, the physical way, I feel her constantly you know, in these beautiful, miraculous ways. Uh, she's there uh, doing beautiful things that maybe she couldn't do before, and I feel really close to her, even though she's passed on, as we like to say. I can't really touch her and feel her like I could. Um, and I cherished the last moments that I was with her. They were really beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, just I got to, to give her this wonderful hug and this long kiss. and um, I didn't realize it was, good, it was a goodbye. I think she did. I think something in her knew that that would be the last time that she would see me. I would see her in that form. She had that sense of things. Uh, and I don't know, sometimes, you know, people, you know different parts of a person, and when people are together that uh, love each other, they share something that maybe other people that are friends with that person, they don't get that. So, you know, I've met other people, and they said, well, she was this way, and how did you handle that? And she was kind of crazy, and I'm like, no, you didn't really know her. I said, you didn't really see the uh, person I seen. Now I met other people that said, oh, she was an amazing person. You know, she could play the drum this way, and she could she'd do these little shamanistic healing sessions. Um, and, you know, you get these different views of people, and you don't really see the full person unless you've been with them for a really long time. So the world is darker for me because this beautiful... Um, light went out and I never really realized how much I loved that person or how much they meant to me until they're gone I'd like to dedicate 
I'd like to dedicate this song uh, to her, to you, Tiva. And uh, you know, I, ha I haven't listened, listened. I hadn't listened to the song for years. <laughs> and right after she died, it just started to popped up and started playing in my mind over and over. And uh, so I'm just going to share that with you as um, as we sign off the air. And uh, really take that person you love, that, that, that friend, and, and tell them that you love them and spend time with them. It's a gift that won't always be there. And I've lost uh, a lot of people in my life. I don't know why. Um, just seems to be one of the reasons this, why I'm alive. It's an experience that, that the Creator has given me. Uh, and um, spend those precious moments even if you don't want to stop and say hello and, and, and stop thinking about your agendas and what you have to say and listen to what they got to say and, and give them that big hug or that kiss or, or just sit down and take their hand and listen to what they say because that is a unique expression. It won't come that way ever again like it quite does in that person. And I know there's the unpleasantries. And there's the people we don't want to be around. <laughs> and that as soon as we're with them, within, you know, 20 seconds, you're like, I'm getting the hell out of here. <laughs> there's that too. But uh, in, buried in that sometimes is something quite beautiful as well. All right. Thank you. And, and let's, uh, I'm going to play that song now. I love you, Tiva. I love you a lot, okay? And I miss you.
This is In Between Stations Radio, signing off here at the 3738 Lima, Delta, Echo. Lima, Delta, Echo. This is In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, USA.